Welcome to Spin It, a business podcast that takes you into the lives of some of today's most influential leaders, entrepreneurs, game changers, athletes, and many more. On Spin It, we take a deep dive into the lives and journeys of our guests to deliver real, unfiltered, and unscripted conversations that will surely inspire hope and promote change. We focus not on their current success, but on the obstacles and challenges that they faced along the way that often doesn't get talked about. How they battled adversity, getting up and being knocked down when all of the odds were stacked against them. Today, I enjoyed speaking to my dear friend and colleague, Adam Posner. Adam is the founder and president of NHP Talent Group, a talent access consultancy specializing in recruitment strategy, talent process, and operations. Prior to pivoting into the world of recruiting, Adam spent 15 years working with the very tough and highly complicated advertising world in New York City. He has led account management and digital strategy at American Express, Sirius XM, and digital ad agencies in New York City like VaynerMedia, and EP Co. for major clients like Verizon, Pepsi, and British Airways. He is also the host of the popular podcast, The Pausecast, showcasing experts that come from the world of talent, HR, and everyone in between that has something to share that his listeners can learn from. The goal of the podcast is to help you harness your inner tenacity to drive your career forward. In this episode, we dive into several aspects of Adam's life, like the trials he faced through university, the pivotal moments in his career, his entrepreneurial journey, and his incredible podcast. Welcome to the show, Adam. Adam, hello. Welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you on. It was absolutely amazing to spend time with you in New York City and to be on your show last week. I have been looking forward to the show all month long, so thank you so much for joining. Likewise. I mean, I really don't hear too many people say that they're looking forward for a full month to doing anything with me, but I, I appreciate that, Stephanie, and I'm uh, excited to be here and introduce myself to your audience and see where this conversation is going to go today. Awesome. Awesome. So, Adam, I want to start at the beginning. Um, I want to talk about where you grew up and I want to talk about how you grew up and just kind of give our audience just a little foundation of who you were growing up and how much trouble you got into. I was a, I was a punk. I was definitely <laughs> I was definitely a punk. And it's funny now, and, and I'm sure you could attest to this. It's not until you have kids that you could actually see yourself through their eyes. And you're like, holy shit, my nine year old daughter. Thank God. Thank God she looks like my wife. My daughter is absolutely stunning. She's a, a specimen. She's a creature. But she acts like me all the time. She does the <laughs> dumbest shit. She says the dumbest things. She try like she fumbles on a on a lie. She tries to like do things. I'm like, that's me. I mean, she literally does my mannerisms. And I look at her sometimes and I'm like, Oh, I gotta yell at her, but at the same time I'm like, No, no, good job, good job, keep doing it. You know, it's like so born and raised in, in, in Brooklyn, Sheepsa Bay, South Brooklyn. And it's interesting too, because I always say that you hear from everybody, oh, you're born in Brooklyn. Yeah. And then when did, when did you move? And they're like, oh, I was born in the hospital. And then we moved when I was three months. I'm like, that doesn't count. No, no, we, we were there. We were there till I was 12, which was interesting. So Brooklyn was cool. Brooklyn was interesting because I think growing up in, a, in such a mixed community, I think it really builds a foundation of acceptance because you're in a school with so many different people that you know, you're not shocked like, oh my God, there's a black kid, an Indian kid, an Asian kid. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, they're all kids in your class. And I think looking back on it now, you know, 40 plus years later, you're like, oh, thank God I had that experience that I grew up in Brooklyn, that I got to experience, you know, that kind of life. You know, both my parents in New York City, Board of Ed teachers, retired 30 plus years. And um, that was another pretty cool thing, too, because they were, they were extremely supportive with my education, my brother's education, and um, just loving. My parents are hippies. You know, my mom's at Woodstock, you know, they're, they're just loving, they're the nicest people in the world, no drama, no BS, you know, just really great parents. And, you know, 
I look at the way they raised my brother and I, and that's the way I, I raise my kids, just with such love and, and care and fun and, and silly voices and all that kind of fun stuff. So I'm pretty thankful for that experience. So we have experienced so much of that moving from San Francisco to North Carolina. My kids grew up in, you know, just like you said, very, very mixed um, Indian, Asian, African-American. It wasn't even nobody talked about it. It was just very normal for them. Um, And then we got to North Carolina and and it's been very let's say it's been a very interesting experience. And it's been a very educational experience because we've been able to really talk about differences and understanding how other people see things and, you know, being a product of your environment. Perspective. Yeah, perspective. Perspective. Exactly. Exactly. Perspective for for sure. And there was another really interesting thing, too, because I I went to apparently I have apparently and I don't know my score. Apparently my IQ when I was younger was was pretty high. And it's definitely not even close to that right now. I'm a freaking idiot. And I burnt many, many brain cells along the way. And I would say it's probably half-life, right? If IQs could have a radioactive half-life, I, I am definitely the effect of that. But I, I got into a special elementary school in a special program called the ASTA program. which was like the, the gifted program, right. which I accelerated at. But at the same time, I was also a, a wise-ass. I was a, I was a punk in elementary school. I'm, so, a, I'm so shocked. The joker. I'm, I was a joker. I'm stunned. I was, I was the joker. I, I did the silly pranks and I did some really <laughs> shitty pranks too. You know, I did some bad, I did some bad things which I've never talked about on, on the podcast. I put a girl's finger in a Snoopy pencil sharpener. <gasps> I tried to sharpen her finger. And we know what happened when, when that, you know. And so and so what happened? So were you the bully or were you bullied? Not a bully. Not a okay. bully. Just, I was just a jerk. From a bully. <laughs> just, I was just a, a jerk. jerk. I was just trying to be funny. <laughs> right? And, wow. and and the same girl, I think a year later, I, I again, trying to be funny, I pulled the chair out from her when she was trying to sit down. And those are things I look back on. I'm like, shit, I really re- regret that. I was, I was a jerk. You know, I was, have you I reached was... out to her on Facebook and apologized? <laughs> the funny thing is, I, <laughs> I think I did a few like years ago once like Facebook came around because like all like you know the kids from elementary right, school right. that you haven't seen everyone got reconnected on Facebook and I, I think so. I'm gonna have to go back and see if Facebook kind of keeps those messages like if I go into her name. But I do apologize. And kids do stupid shit in elementary school. You're learning to be who you are, and you know some lessons are hard, some are easy, but you go through that. But my parents did something that was so amazing but it kind of impacted me and my brother they said you know we want to have a better life for you your brother you're 12 your brother's 10 like you can't be sharing a room you know we don't want you going to the high schools here in new york city and they wanted a better life for us and they moved out to the burbs to actually the town i live in now in merrick and that was a big culture shock you know i I moved in the middle of of seventh grade and that was really tough because you have all the elementary schools in the area that are separate there's like five elementary schools but then all the kids come together for for sixth and seventh grade before they go to high school no, seventh and eighth grade, and then ninth in high school, and it was it was just crazy. I came in, and you know, I was a new kid, and they thought I was from Brooklyn and tough. I'm like, I'm not a tough kid. I'm just a little Jewish kid from Brooklyn, you know. Like, I'm a scrappy kid. I'm a scrappy yeah, kid. Yeah, and it, and it was tough. It was tough to come in and and like try to find friends and find your voice and be yourself. And you know, you're 12, 13 years old, and your body's going through changes, and you're going through changes, and that was tough. That was a tough transition for me. But I found my groove. I found my niche. I found my tribe, and um, that was interesting. And I, I love living in the burbs. You know, we had we had a good time out here. And now I I live here. I mean, it's my town. It's my home. And it was it called us back because it's comfortable and it's great. And you know, we built our life here. Amazing, amazing. So you ended up going to the University of Buffalo, but it wasn't your first choice. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Talk to me what, about what that. What podcast did you listen to where I said that? I did didn't. On- I didn't listen to any podcast that you listened I ever. But you had to know it wasn't my first choice. I, I did. I, I had to know. Who did I talk about that with? <laughs> oh. 
I had that conversation recently. I don't know, but great research on that one. So yeah, this was, this is actually a great decision that I made because I wanted to go to University of Maryland. I went to visit a friend who was a year older. I had a great time there. And you know, I, I went to summer camp for many, many years. And I always kind of looked up to the older counselors who were in college and they'd be rocking their Maryland, their Delaware, their UMass kind of shirts. You know, they're going away to school and you're hearing stories of their fraternities and all the parties and everything. And I always had this dream about going to one of those cool schools. And I, you know, I went down to Maryland and it was awesome and I applied and uh, I got into the honors program, not the presidential program. The presidential program would have been a full ride scholarship. Honors program was partial and it was still stupid expensive. And my parents said, listen, we could send you here to Maryland, but it's gonna literally bankrupt us or you could go to University of Buffalo, which was perfectly cool and awesome. And we'll be able to help you out. It's a lot more affordable. Listen, they're, they're teachers, you know, like they, they're not, you know, made of money, which is crazy because I look at them now and they're living the best life, pension, uh, going on trips. They're literally living their best life right now, thank God. Anyway, so I decided to go to University of Buffalo, and as I say, it was the best five years of my life up there. And the people, the community are just awesome up there. I didn't even mind the snow. It was fun. It was crazy. Uh, there was one time we almost got caught in, snowed in for Thanksgiving. Actually, we did. There was literally six feet of snow in a 36-hour period. I mean, if you can imagine, and people see, like, like, literally, we were sliding off the roofs. Like, we were doing some dumb stuff there. But uh, I immersed myself in the community up there. I worked for the Buffalo Sabres for a couple of years, which is an incredible internship. Really got embedded with the community. Dated a Buffalo Jill cheerleader for a little bit, which was kind of fun. I also worked at the mall up there, which if you ever want to really get a good sense of a people, of a <laughs> how people are, work at the mall. Sit in the food court and just observe. Brilliant. Yes, it was, it was a baseball card store, memorabilia. I forgot the name of it, it's gonna to come to me later, I forgot the name of it, but I worked in a baseball card store. My buddy James worked in the store next door, which was a bonsai store. So he sold the bonsais and I sold the baseball cards and on quiet days we would just like kinda of both like stand like outside of our respective stores. And he didn't drive so he had the same schedule as me, I'd drive him to the mall. And we were just mall buddies and it was just, it was a trip, it was a trip working in that mall. We saw some funny shit. So at this point, you're 18, 19, 20, you're in college. Mm -hmm. What was your biggest rejection or your biggest obstacle at that point? Right then, what was the biggest thing you had gone through? Yeah, well, the biggest thing for me was I almost got kicked out. So I got accepted to University of Buffalo's five-year MBA program business school, which would have set me up nicely. And I failed out of it. I um, failed calculus. I failed a couple of classes my freshman year. I was partying, pledging a fraternity. And um, that was real disappointment. That was a that was a tough one, and my parents threatened to pull me out if I didn't shape up. But I did get kicked out of the business school. Wow, which sucked. It really sucked. And and um, what did they say to you, Adam? When you got kicked out and you had to make it, that call, what did they say? They were just disappointed. I think that was a real the first time I really disappointed my parents, and I felt it. And I really vowed to real to to never do that again. And obviously, little disappointments here and there. I mean, we're we're young. We're in our twenties, late teens, twenties. We're growing. We're we're becoming adults. We're learning how to live on our own. We're learning how to take accountability, take responsibility, which we'll dig into later, I'm sure. But that was that was the first time where I was like, shit, you know, I gotta get my act together. And I did, you know, I, I pulled it together. I got the grades up and, and I ended up staying at University of Buffalo. Uh, I needed an extra semester. We called it the bonus year, the fifth year. We called it the bonus year. And um, I finished in four and a half, but I ended up staying for the full five because I was working for the Sabres and it was great. I mean, we had, we, had, we had such a good time up there. And when I came home in the summers, I did a couple of cool things. I had some great internships. Uh, working at Gray Advertising, which really gave me that first taste into the ad world. And I also spent a couple of summers working as a cabana boy in a beach club, which taught me the real entrepreneurial spirit of the hustle. Because if anybody is any, if anybody doesn't know about a beach club here on Long Island or anywhere, as a cabana boy, you're essentially a waiter, a busboy, 
you're taking their chairs down to the beach, you're really taking care of everything. But what you're also doing is you're floating your guests' money. So they'll yeah. order food and you'll run up a tab and at the end of the week, you give them the bill and then they tip on top of that, right? So you have to manage cash flow. And there's all these little side hustles that go on there. So we, we have these little side hustles going on with the girls that work the register where sometimes they just wouldn't, you know, add something up. They wouldn't include something there, right? There was a whole system. It was literally like the, when you see like the Goodfellas movies, the scams that we had there. So you learn a lot. You learn a lot about how to hustle. You learn a lot about customer service, right? You learn like the schmooze, right? You got to schmooze some of these older ladies. Some of them were real milthy. I'm telling you, it was a good time. <laughs> you know, it's right? so you funny, Adam. You... It's so funny because because I, I know yours are not as old. I know your oldest is nine and a half. My oldest will be 27 next month. And then I have yeah. a 25-year-old and a 20-year-old oh, yeah. and a 12-year-old. And when I tell them stories of this hustle, so when I tell them stories about yep. the system within the workings of uh -huh. whatever, like, oh, yeah. you know, sports camp or like things oh, like that. Just that they, They're literally like, you did that, mom? Oh. oh. They're just so offended. <laughs> so many. There were so many side hustles that went so on. So many hustles. And then there, there was a couple of cabana boys that were uh, doing some things on the side with some of the guests. It right. was it was full service, right? man. Oh, there was some full service going on at this beach club. It was a good time. <laughs> and then the first time I was there, I was working the door. I was doing like the, the, the tickets and checking the passes and the scams that we have with the guest passes and everything. So there was there was a point where, you know, you come home on a Sunday night and I'd be wearing my khakis with my cargo shorts. Right. I come home and I'd literally you know, go into my room and I turn my pockets inside out and just cash would fall out. And there was times I was making more money back then than I was in my, in my 20s right, and 30s. Right, right, for sure. You know, in your sure. 40s, right? And then on Sunday nights, we had off on Monday. Sunday nights, we'd literally get in the car from the beach club and go down to Atlantic City with our fake IDs, chalked IDs, and I'll leave it at that. Anyway, those were, those were the early days of the pause, yep. So, Adam, let's fast forward a bit. Let's talk about working at VaynerMedia. But I want to go back to the beach club because I, I never like, talk about it. I'm kidding. You're like, I never the beach club. You exclusive. I never talked about the beach club days on, on a podcast. There's so much good stuff there. I okay. mean, I mean, the beach club, I just so you know, I literally have 30 questions going through my head. I'm like, the I want to know club. this. I want to know this. I want to know this. We'll come back to that. And I finally just last year got rid of my last cutoff Sands Atlantic t-shirt. Did yep. you get rid of it or did Alona get rid of it? <laughs> no, I, I got rid of it. I mean, it was 20, 20 plus years old that I've had this cutoff, like, like framed, right. like from a scissor, right. not like a nice cutoff. Right. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Not a proper cutoff. I think my husband got rid of a whole bunch of those shirts because he's like, this is a guy's shirt. I bet you slept in the shirt. This is a guy's shirt. I bet you slept in the uh, shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was it's like, go. that's actually really not what happened. But you go ahead and with that whole theory yourself. Back uh, to Vayner. Yeah. <laughs> No, we did that. We did it early on in our relationship too. My my wife now had a couple of shirts. I'm like, I don't want to see that shirt anymore. I know that's <laughs> not your shirt, and I don't. I get it. We've all had relationships in our past, but I pretend I don't want. To, I just no nope, out of sight, out of mind. That's so Moving funny. On. I love it. So you worked for Vayner VaynerMedia um, before you were fired. Yes. Seven months after working wah, wah, there. Wah, wah, wah. What <laughs> did Gary say to you when he brought you into the office? Yeah, that was a fun day. So I, you know, I, I it, it was on April 1st, 2015. God. And so April, April Fool's Day to me is always like, I call it my anniversary, right? And and it was actually the, the best and worst day of my life on, on my professional life, right? Like I look back on it and that day was obviously terrible, but I knew it was coming. And you know, I look back on it and I'm like, thank God that happened because that was a pivotal moment in my life and my career where I really, you know, took, took ownership. So, th so that uh, Gary and I always, you know, when I were, I was lucky because I was back then Gary was much more hands-on in the business in the day-to-day -day business. And I did a decent amount of work with him, right? We did new business pitches, a couple of accounts uh, that he dipped in on. So we, we, we had a rapport, we had a relationship. I had the opportunity to go to biz pitches with him and that was 
incredible to watch him operate in that kind of environment. The early conversations of building out Hudson Yards. I was in rooms with Ross. Uh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, the, the Miami Dolphins guy, the owner. But the day I got let go, I mean, listen, there was a couple of conversations that preceded that moment. And anybody who gets fired for performance, if you don't know it's coming, something's wrong with you. In very, very few cases, you're like, oh, my God. Why did I get fired? Now, of course, it's outliers. People get fired for stupid reasons. But if it's for performance and it's real and it's, it's, it's in fact, you know, actual, correct, you did not do your job, you did something wrong, you affected the business, it shouldn't come as a surprise, right? So when I, when I got fired, of course, it hit home, but it did not come as a surprise. So the, the, the HR folks, you know, they, they gave me the news and I was like, all right, yep, not, for, not the first time, but this, this one definitely hurts because I really thought Vayner, I had the opportunity for Vayner to really be my forever job that I thought grass is greener. And, you know, I sat with Gary and, you know, I've said this a million times. There was a lot of really personal conversation that we had. We talked about life, what's next. But then we started to talk about, you know, he was asking me, it's like, do you see yourself you know, doing this? Do you like this? Do you enjoy this? All these questions going on in my head, literally the minute I just got let go and I'm, and I'm just, things are spinning around in my head. I'm like, right. all I was thinking about was how the hell am I going to tell my wife when I walk out of here? That's all I was thinking about, disappointing her. I could deal with my own fuck ups, right? I'll figure this out. But we just bought a house, literally, you know, our expenses were out the wazoo. And that's it was all this shit going through my head. And he, and he said to me, he goes, listen, what you need to do when you leave here, you need to stop focusing on the things that you suck at and double down on your strengths. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that for a moment, because everyone in your whole life is always telling you, go work on that, get better. You're not good at math, work on this. Instead of like, all right, well, maybe you're not good at math, but you're great at science. So why don't you really focus on putting that energy towards the science? But that's when things started to click. And we spoke about what I'm good at this relationships right and he's like have you given any thought to anything outside of you know account management and strategy it's like well listen i have a buddy that does you know hr uh finance recruiting and healthcare recruiting and i and i looked at him and i remember this and he like it was like ah. and he said to me and he talks about this too when he was on my show he's like i knew it he's like i knew you would be a great recruit i knew it'd be a great move for you and i followed that through so I'm sorry, I'm going to dig more into this because yeah, please. I can't see you having any issues with performance. I, that's shocking no, to no, me. I mean, you no, are literally no. like on it. You are literally like, no. you you no. are, you don't sugarcoat no. anything. You're like, this needs to no. change. This needs I, to change. Do this, do this, I was, do this. I was, I was, I was not, I was not anywhere close to who I am now Amazing. than I was six and a half years ago. I was very different. I was insecure about my qualifications. I also did not handle some interpersonal relationships in the office well. Now I Vayner, can see that. Vayner, Vayner was a very young, a very young agency, and it was kind of, kind of a Lord of the Flies kind oh, of situation okay. there. And anyone who's in account management, you know, if you're if you're in the ad world and you get hired in a new company, usually they're going to put you on, a, on, a, on an account. You're going to manage this account. You're going to manage this Pepsi account. What happened was when I came in. And Claude at the time there was not head of people. She was advertising you know, senior account leader. Yeah. Who was literally, she, she really helped me on the way out too, which I, I love her for. And we, I talked about that, you know, a couple of times, but I didn't handle interpersonal relationships. They put me on an account where there was someone underneath me and there was someone above me and I was basically coming in and they thought I was a threat to them. Mm. And I didn't handle that well. <laughs> I didn't elevate it. I tried to handle it on my own and it literally snowballed into a fucking disaster. Like literally I was mean girled over there. Wow. And if I fast forward now, if that happened to me now, I'm not taking that shit from anybody. Right. Well, and there's right. also too a lot more exposure. You know how to handle it. Correct. You have the experience of being, hey, let's sit down and talk about this. Let's have the no. conversation. No. And they were like, it was literally like high school. Yeah, like, right. Like they blocked me out of meetings. It was just terrible. It was just shitty. And, and it just snowballed. And it was really, you know, so Gary even said, he's like, listen, he's like, it's not because 
we don't like you. I mean, those two people didn't like me, but the rest of the people did. And the other hard part was, you know, I, I was thrown into some really tricky situations. You know, there was one time where I got thrown on one of our big clients, you know, came to us and they wanted to activate a huge multi-million dollar thing for South by Southwest, literally like 10 weeks before the event. And they, and I got thrown on top of it and I didn't get the creative support. I didn't get the strategy support. We finally pulled something together and it was fine, but it wasn't up to standards and they weren't happy with it and someone had to go. And that was me. And I just got put in shitty situations and wasn't meant to be, was not meant to be. So what did you do next? So you leave and obviously you're feeling absolute crap. What do you yeah. do next? On on that day or just in the, in the sequence of my life? But well, yeah, so it was, it, <laughs> was, it was terrible. I remember walking outside, it was freezing cold and it was snowing that day. It was late, you know, it was it was flurrying and it was freezing and you know it's Park Avenue and my wife worked only five blocks up north at her law firm that she was at at the time and I walked outside and I called her and I'm like April Fools she's like what do you mean I got fired she goes no really she's like oh. and it was like you know ten thirty ten forty five in the morning she's like well why don't you just come up to my office just just walk over here I was like I got to stop to make she's like what you going to the bar and I there was this bar like literally at the the traditional New York City Irish pub that's on like every block. And it's like 10.45 in the morning and I walk in and literally it's like three old men at the bar. And I was like, oh shit, this is so cliche, right? And I sat there and I, you know, had my whiskey and, you know, made a couple of text messages and phone calls. And, and then I walked up to her, you know, office and shut her door and I just cried. I just remember crying because I, I didn't know what was next. I felt like such a disappointment. I was so excited about this opportunity at Vayner that I worked so hard for, Stephanie, that I was so proud of, that I bragged about to everybody. And this is before Gary was a household name to anyone outside of social and digital. And I didn't know what to do. And she just, you know, held me and hugged me and said, just just go home and we'll figure this out. I and, love that. Um, She's such a, and, she is such a rock star yeah, and she, she is such is, a class act. She um, is. And, and I, you know, I count my lucky stars every day for her, but... The, the next few weeks were tough because it was a moment of actualization where, okay, I'm 35. What am I doing in my career? Like, I have to support my family. That's not even an option. Right. Right. I'm not going to be a freeloader. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to rely on her. And I've been through this a couple of times early on in my career with her when we we're together where we lost an account, like 20 <coughs> people got let go at a firm. And so we've been through this before, but this time was different. It was personal. She knew it was personal yeah. and I had to make a change. Right. And um, we spoke a lot about... Recruiting and you know, luckily for me, I had some great recruiters that I've worked with in the past and some of them I'm deeply connected with now. And they gave me a lot of their time and really worked with me on understanding what it meant to work in recruiting, the ups and downs. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm gonna do this. And luckily for me, I, I, I aligned with a great firm called Onward Search that it wasn't a smile and dial, million phone calls, yeah. kind of place. It was, <clears throat> they knew that I was coming to the table with my skill set of being able to foster and develop relationships. And I was also coming with 15 years of working in the ad industry. And I was gonna recruit for marketing and advertising roles. So you didn't have to train me on how to recruit an account manager or a creative director, because I knew it inside and out. But also because of my Rolodex. Right? And you bring the book. Deep, deep when you bring the book and the relationship, that's you know, everything. And, and and I hit the ground running, you know, rookie of the year my first year and, and I and I just crushed it and I knew it was right for me. And I knew it was the right thing and I and I haven't looked back. So now tell me about you founded your own company. I did. What was that like as being a first time founder? Because you know, say Adam, let me let me caveat this, okay? First sure. time first time founder is is super, super, super hard. It is impossible. It is difficult. It is painful. Right. Okay. Painful. But a first time founder for a recruiting agency and yeah. standout and key differentiators and every mm -hmm. single thing that you are, what was your vision? How did you do it? What happened? So it was interesting. So at that point, you know, when I went on my own, I was only recruiting for a little about two years, right? So by any traditional standards to go out on your own with like two years experience in anything is risky. 
But I didn't look at it as two years. I looked at it as two years in recruiting, but also 15 years of in-market experience with the wind at my cell, behind my cell. Mm -hmm. And I went all in. And it was one of those, another conversation I had with my wife. I, I didn't like the second firm I was at. You know, it just wasn't the right place for me. And I was complaining about it. And she's like, why, why can't you do this on your own? You're giving half your money to the house. You have your commissions to the house. What the hell are you getting for that? You're going to the city every day. You're spending money on this. What, to just go sit in an office? There's no one there supporting you. What are you doing? I was like, well, I could do this. And that was it. And the next day, August 30th, 2017, got my LLC done. And, and there she is. There she is. NHP. Those are my daughter's initials right there. Nina Harrison Posner. That's NHP Talent Group. And, um, you know, it started in what is now my son's room, right, in, my, in, our, in our house. And the key differentiator I knew is I wanted to emulate all the great recruiters that I've worked with personally and make sure I didn't do anything that all the shitty recruiters that I've worked with too, the negative experiences from interviewing and bring that level of account management. Because one thing I was really good at, maybe I faltered sometimes in the digital strategy part, some of the you know future thinking around executing and, and digital strategy. But the one thing that I always did well was manage clients. And that's because of my first job ever at the Food Group, my boss, Karen Wertheim, really instilled in me the concept of client management. Under promise, over deliver, manage yes. expectations. Yes. Golden standard, something that I built the foundation <clears throat> of my career on, and I instill it to Kevin who works with me, just over communicate, right? Like just stay on top of your shit. Like really be mindful about what you say, what you write. And I've worked with Kevin on this where he would just say too much in an email. Like, dude, what the hell are you doing, bro? Right. Right, under promise. Yes. If you know something is gonna be ready for Monday, say you'll have it for them Tuesday. And like just basic one-on-one -on -one right. shit that makes such a difference in the relationship, right? And we're not lying to clients at all, but we're just managing expectations. That's exactly right. Okay. Mindset. So I have, I have a few questions. I want to go through this with you because when I look at your overall experience and I see how connected you are, I mean, you and I hit it off immediately. You do so many things differently. Okay. There's so many things. I, we've talked about this before, Adam. I ran a management consulting firm for 16 mm -hmm. and a half years. It was a global firm, you know, up to 636 employees, 1% yeah. uh, turnover. I hire very, very differently, but I had to gain that confidence within me. I had to go, because I would first look at the Stanford graduate and look at how beautiful the resume was. And I'd be like, this will work. This is great. Mm -hmm. And every single one of those type employees, I shouldn't say every one of them, but a majority of them ended up in a disaster or a huge managerial issue. And so I have a few questions. So experience or education? Experience all day long. It's a little funny kind of side note on that. When I was at American Express, which was one of my least favorite jobs ever, but I learned so much Me during too. that time. <laughs> I hated it there. Yeah. I hated it every moment, but amazing company, amazing benefits, training. But the one thing I really learned, well, two things. Well, one, I learned process and procedure, but I also learned what I didn't like, which was the financial side of what I had to do. But looking back on it in 10 years since Amex, thank God, because I need that experience to P&L for my business now. So it all comes back around. But the first, the second day that I was there and I got introduced to my team and the people there, the first question they asked me, Stephanie, was not where are you coming from, what company? They asked me what B-School I went to. Yeah. And I was like, B-School? I went to University of Buffalo. That's a B-School. <laughs> and, and their eyes would roll like, what? Is he trying to make a joke? And they would just be so pissed. I could see it in their eyes. Like, wait a minute, this guy has the same job as me. Yeah. Probably making a little bit more because I know they just hired him and I've just been promoted in here. And he didn't, He went to fucking SUNY Buffalo? Yeah. Without a grad school? Oh my God, and, what the, and the, the whole, travesty. Right, and the whole the whole way their whole entire body changes. Like, it was just like, body just language. so yeah. dismissive. Awful. Like, ugh. Oh, and then they oh, would just, oh, I oh. totally, totally hear you. Okay, so experience all day long, okay? All day long. 
tell me about how do you calculate risk? So you know exactly what I'm talking about. You get the, you're talking to the candidate on the phone and you're having the conversation and you're like, they could be a really good fit. And I, and this has been open for a really long time. How do you walk through calculating the risk? It's interesting too, because there's a couple things you need to know. Um, and I've been in those shoes before. Some people are really good interviewers. Some people are not because I was a great interviewer, even though I sucked at certain jobs, I would come in and I would charm the shit out of anybody. I knew what to say. I knew how to tell my story, you know, very strong extroverted ability to do that. So I know how to smell bullshit and I smell bullshit through my spidey sense of being a bullshitter. But I also know what questions to ask about certain jobs because I've been in them before to really sense if this person knows what the hell they're doing, right? So I want to sense, what did you do? What did you do? Not what the team did, but what did you accomplish? What did you actually do? Give me quantifiable results there too. So I'll be listening to a spiel. I'll be listening to a candidate. They're kind of smooth there. And then I'll come in with the real questions. That's, that's why I kind of sense it out. But risk, I never want to put a, I never, I never want to put an unqualified candidate in front of a client because that's just not the, the quality control isn't there. Ultimately, that's what they're paying me for, to be that filter. We are the filter. Sometimes I'll miss though. Sometimes I'll miss both ways. Sometimes I'll put a great candidate through that I think is great. That's terrible. And sometimes I'll pass on a candidate that was probably great for the role, but we're humans, we're fallible, right? Like, like we, we can't be perfect all the time. But I would say, you know, pretty high percentile that any candidate I'm putting through is going to be worth at least a conversation with the client. Now, there are candidates that I see that maybe not spot on experience wise, but I sense something and I sense an aptitude, an energy, a desire, a passion, which you cannot teach. Do you, do you say clear. that? Do you say that when you're presenting him forward? Yeah, always. So when I had the management consulting firm, when I was just starting out before I had a huge support team, okay, I would literally call and I would go, Adam, look, there's 75% mm -hmm. of everything that you want, yep. but there are 150% of the things that you didn't yes. ask for. I really, really think you should give this guy yep. a shot. Do you say that? I say it all the time. And they'll, nine out of 10 times my client will take that phone call because they trust me. Yeah. But then there's also times when they're like, Adam, you know the role, it's a very technical role. Say it's like performance marketing right. media role where they need to know Facebook ads, right. Instagram. I'm just saying, making that up. They don't have it. They're like, I, don't, I can't train them. I don't have the bandwidth. We don't have that. that. That candidate will not work. When do you fire a client? That's a great question. So I think this is one of the hardest things for do, to do for any business owner is not all clients are good clients. And I think it's really important. So there's a couple things. When, when there's some tactical stuff, like if, I have payment terms. I run a small business. I have to payroll. If you if you continually, I'll give you I give you one chance early on. If you're late, we'll work it out. But if it comes a pattern, I can't deal with that. I can't be using my energy to chase you down for payments. Scope creeps, clients that push it too much. You know, I, I think that you know clients, especially in the hiring space, I can't make a decision that lowball candidates that will literally. Like, let's just say hypothetically, there's a $100,000 budget for a role and the candidate's looking for 105, 110, and you can't push it for that great candidate and you would rather continue our search for another two months, you're not a good client. Now I'm getting paid hourly. We're hourly based consultants. I'm like, fine, fuck it. You know, if you want to keep paying me, I'll, I'll keep searching for you. But at the end of the day, that's not a good relationship. And I don't want to interview candidates and put them in a position in a shitty company. But Adam, do you say that? Double do you have the conversation and go, hey, you know what? I think that there I've had is- i a couple times. Okay. And also there's been times too where you, you know a search is going on too long and you know as a recruiter why that's happening. Exactly. And you know when to end it. And I'm very proactive sometimes while, where, where there'll be, it's happened in the past where like a search is going on too long and I will proactively go to a client back. 
you know, we've been at this a long time. We really feel like we're putting our best foot forward. I think it's in our best interest that we wrap this up at the end of the month. And nine out of 10 times, a client's going to be like, I, I agree with you on that. And you have to part ways and put your energies elsewhere. You right. have a finite amount of time and energy. So many of the executives that I coach are Fortune 100, Fortune 500, and we have this conversation so often. And it's not a scary thing for me anymore. Like, I want it to be the best thing for you, too. I want it to be the best experience mm -hmm. for you. And clearly, we're not clicking. Now, I will say, in 88 clients that we had for our previous management consulting firm, you know, I've only had that conversation once or twice and mm -hmm. within six months they've come back and they say, Hey, you know what? Boomerang. We exactly, exactly. So I love that you have that conversation. Last question. It's a hard, it's a, ter it's a terribly hard, first of all, like it's a terribly hard conversation too. It's, if, if your business is doing well and yeah. you can financially afford it, it's not a hard conversation, but when you're struggling, it's a tough one because let's just talk about this for a quick second there. Cause your gut is telling you, Hey, I need the money. Right. We need to bring in the income, but you're also sucking up the energy to go out and do biz dev and bring in a better client. Right. Right. So you have to be willing to take that temporary dip for long-term gain. But Adam, you know, it's, I'm so glad that you actually stopped me and pulled me back here because you know what, this is a really important thing, you know, through the pandemic, um, you know, I, everybody knows this, you know, I get the nickname, you know, dream mm -hmm. killer or, you know, all the other things because, because there's certain people that I won't coach. And, and during the pandemic, when, you know, when the business wasn't at, you know, 180% growth and we were, you know, having some, some big struggles. There were times where I had to like take a step back and go, mm. do I really not want to coach Bitcoin executives? I don't know Bitcoin. So how am I going to be able to coach? And they're like, no, 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 Steph, we have experts in Bitcoin. We need leadership skills. We need, mm. you know, connection skills. We need humility mm. skills. We need to figure out how to grow our team. Soft skills. Right, the soft skills. And the soft skills are really important. But Adam, you know, as well as I do that, you have to be able to understand the technology. You need to understand the industry. You have to under, so you have to take the, the, that the core, step back. Yeah, you have to have the core requirements. Exactly. I call that you have to have the, the table setters, like table stakes. Like you, these are baseline things that you need. And every time you can see on like on like LinkedIn or wherever, people are like character over skill. Caveat: as long as the person has the, the skills exactly. necessary. <laughs> And no one ever fucking says that. And I'm like, no. just stop with your clickbaity bullshit. Like, like, let's have a real chat about this, right? That's awesome. So I want to talk about the podcast. I was on the show last week, and and so I get off the show and, It'll and be airing in early 22. I don't even care when you when you do it because it was so fun. Okay, so I go downstairs and I'm pouring pouring drinks and everything. I'm like, my face hurts. Do I have a, like Do I have like a tooth problem? Like, what's going on? I laughed so hard. You did such incredible incredible research but overall adam it was so connected and so fun what's the purpose of the podcast so it's interesting when i first launched the show it was because it was an itch i needed to scratch and i heard a couple of other kind of recruiting hr shows out there and they just weren't great and i did a post about this today with howard stern i i am the biggest howard stern fan my entire life some of my earliest memories are when i was 11 12 years old in brooklyn listening to him on the radio, sitting Indian style on my on my bed, listening to Howard on, on K-Rock and Terrestrial Radio. And back then when it was it was an old Howard, right? It was it was an old Howard that was with the, with the porn stars and the strippers and all that kind of stuff there too. But it wasn't until he moved over to Satellite Radio in 2005 and I actually followed him. I went to work at Sirius for five years because of Howard, awesome time. He changed. And that platform where he didn't have to take a commercial break every 16 minutes gave him an unfiltered platform where he could say whatever the hell he wanted for as long as he wanted. And he evolved into being, in my opinion, the best interviewer in the history of broadcasting because he takes every 
interview and he turns it into a conversation. But what you don't see, because he's a master conversationalist, but what you don't see behind the scenes is the sheer amount of research and prep that he does. Yes, he has a full team behind him. He's been doing this for 45 years. But Howard, and I know this for a fact firsthand, how much time he takes into his craft and preparing so that when he has someone on like Hillary Clinton, it's a flawless, seamless conversation and he could bring out of her the humanity, the humor, the grandmother, the, the best part of that interview, and I talk about it a lot, was he brought up the love story of Bill and Hillary Clinton in the, in the late 60s, early 70s that no one's ever freaking heard about or talked about before they were who they are now. Love them or hate them, we'll put that aside. And you're like, holy shit. And, and so I had this itch, and, and, I, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. I've always kind of wanted to do it. And as they say, the rest is history. And uh, I just loved it out of the gate. And I also knew how to, in my head, from a, an account management, project management perspective, how to outsource. I knew I didn't want to I didn't want to learn video editing. I didn't want to learn audio editing. I didn't want to spend any of my time on that. And I knew how to outsource. I knew how to use Fiverr and other resources and freelancers to test it out and figure out how to build a show. And it's funny, I look back on it. If you look back at season one of The Simpsons, you know, 28 years ago, it's like a, a child drew it. You know what I right. mean? And then you look at it, you know, 30 years later of where The Simpsons is now, and it's just an evolution of, of creative content and just improving. I'm and, flabbergasted and over, over two things. The first thing is that um, that you were listening to Howard Stern when you were 11 or 12. That's the yeah. first one, which my son will not be listening to this. He, he just celebrated 40 years. He, yeah. uh, he gets in the car and says... Daddy was listening to Howard Stern again, Mommy. <laughs> so that was first. And then I think the second thing is that The Simpsons have been around for 28 years, and that makes Longer me than feel... that, I think it's 30 plus. It's I think ridiculous. It's That's so incredible. Well, you can fact check that after. I'm just throwing a number out there. I mean, it's been on for forever. So who's the who's your audience? Who's the main listeners? Yeah, so, sorry, I didn't answer your question. So, so, so it started out where I really wanted to bring on, and, and, and it goes back to my network, right? I mean, I've only had to napalm one professional relationship in my career. I mean, I literally am I'm still close and friendly with people that fucking fired me from jobs, right? Like Gary Vaynerchuk is there for me, sparingly, a couple times a year. But where else do you, do you get fired from a job and you have a better relationship with them afterwards? And that's just kind of my MO. So I, you know, I really want to dip into my network and showcase real true HR recruiting people leaders. So that's like the first 10, 15 episodes. And then I started to like kind of think about, well, I really like talking about people's careers and going back to the early part. And because no one talks about it. They always talk about the present. What are you doing now? Talk about your book. Talk about what you're doing. But let's go back to, let's go back to that shitty first job you had out of college. Or if you didn't, like what was those early jobs that really laid the foundation? And that was kind of when the whole thing of unpacking the career journey really kind of like played into my head. And no matter what guests I would have on, I would always talk about the early career, the foundations, those lessons learned. And that built in kind of the, the structure and format of the show. But really the show for me, and this clicked about 40, 50 episodes in where it really wasn't about me and it never the show was never about me. The show is creating a stage, a canvas where I could showcase and shine a light on others and really bring out the best of them in a way that has just been a natural thing for me. But the real kind of funny thing was, um, it was a year and a half ago, one of my buddies is a really good guitar player and we've had a few drinks, we're hanging out at night and he's playing guitar and everything and I'm just mesmerized by him playing. I'm like, holy shit fucking good and I start I'm like dude you're amazing at this I mean like you're you're, you're great at this I mean I, I can't sing I can't dance I can't DJ I can't draw I can't act I don't even know what my art is and it's like dude he's like I've listened to a few of your shows he's like you are a really good host and I'm like what do you mean he's like dude I'm not trying to just blow smoke up your ass but like you drive the conversation you ask good questions you keep it moving he's like that's your art man 
And I was like, that was tough for me because I, I don't take compliments well. I've never, yeah. you know, I first I 15 that. years of my career was just shitted <clears> on, you know? And like, I finally found my groove in recruiting. I found my groove with the podcast. And that all gave me such a real, true, authentic confidence that I've never had. And it's really just upped my game in everything that I do. What's the biggest lesson that you've learned from podcasting? Well, there's, there's lots of micro lessons. Because in every show, I ask my guests, what's the greatest piece of advice they've ever received? And I ask them what their North Star is. And I've had, you know, 200 plus guests and some incredible folks like yourself on where that's my masterclass. I learned through osmosis. I learned all these lessons. But for me, you know, the biggest lesson I, I've learned, it's not even a lesson. It's just a continual progression of, of confidence and self-esteem that I've needed. And it's just grown my business and everything that I do. And it's the law of attraction. You put it out there and it's all going to come to you. So when you're doing the podcast, Adam, have you ever had it go the way you didn't want it to go, the way you didn't see it going? And how do you handle that when that happens? It's only happened a couple of times. And listen, there's some guests that are just duds. And it sucks because I really try to close the, the aperture right. of who I'm having on. And now I've learned the hard way. So what I do now is if someone pitches me a guest and I'm not familiar with them, before I say yes, I'm going to listen to some past appearances. I'm going to skim through a couple of things. And because sometimes it's fucking like pulling teeth yeah, and it's for sure. painful. And that's one of the hardest things as a host is to pull out a good show from a, a rough guest. Because ultimately, and I say this all the time, and I talk about this in the, in, the, in the pause course that I just put out, ultimately your responsibility is to the listener. That's right. The responsibility to the listener to give them a good show because otherwise you're going to lose your audience. Right. You put out, I've ducked a couple of shows. I mean, they I think just, that that's so important to, to say. They just, didn't make it, they just didn't make it to air. But, and you know what? The guests never followed up and it's just out there and we're, we're all for the better. And I, because you didn't put out a you didn't you weren't selfish with your guests with your audience's time by putting out a shitty show that they had to listen to and now you're going to lose audiences. Yes, that's I, and you know what? So here's the thing. I think that that's so important because I've had that and you're literally pulling teeth. It feels like an interview. It feels like a question answer, oh. question answer, question answer. I don't want that. Does. I don't. I don't want to put that. My, I don't want to put the people that have respect for me that are you know doing having amazing listenership now that are really starting to trust in me and believe in mm -hmm. who I'm researching. I don't want that. I don't want them to no. you know to have to listen to that. So I totally agree with you. What effect has podcasting had on your brand and also too the people that you actually bring on their brands? Yeah, I mean that's the coolest thing. It's the it's the amalgamation. It's the the arbitrage, right? Like you're you're, you're you have the ability. For example, your audience is going to listen. Some folks might know me through through you, through through Hala, some other folks that are in our our mutual ecosystems. But it's the opportunity to get out there and and and, and introduce yourself to a new audience and expand it. And I think that's the greatest thing about podcasting. And that's why I I, I don't think I've ever turned down a guest appearance, right? And even and I'm really also very generous with new podcasters because I love it because I get a chance to kind of teach them a couple things along the way and I'll, and I'll give them criticism and, and feedback, not criticism. Yeah. Sometimes criticism and, and actionable feedback and they, and they, because people did that with me, right? Like some of the early feedback I, I got, you know, early on in my show was Adam, shut the hell up. I mean, I talk a lot less when I'm, I'm the, I'm the host, but like, shut up and let your guests talk. Stop thinking we could, we could almost hear you thinking about the next question before you even let the guest finish their current one. And I changed my whole approach. And I worked with uh, my good friend, Jani, who's a media coach, and she transformed the format, the flow, me. is like, we worked so hard on role-playing and like questions and like jumping in, how to, how to throw in a two or three-parter and how to cut somebody off the right way politely. No one does it better than Howard Stern, by the way. I mean, literally, I mean, Gary Vaynerchuk did it to fucking Mark Zuckerberg on that. And no one did it better. And looking back on it, people are like, Gary, stop interrupting, stop interrupting. But you know what he did? He stopped 
Zuck from being a freaking robot. And he made him smile and laugh. And he cut him off at the right time. And there was brilliance in that interview. I told him that. I saw him a few weeks ago. I told him that. And he's like... And he gave me like the wink, like he knew, he knew that I knew what he was doing. <laughs> I think that that's a key thing that you bring up though. I think that that's so important. I think that whenever I first started, I, I, I let the guests talk and talk and talk because I saw it as their platform and I wanted people to know them. But when I'm losing interest, if I'm losing interest, then that means everybody else is losing interest. If you, I keep my phone down yeah. during the show and it's, it's set on, on basically sleep mode. So there's only like literally five people that it'll ring for a case of emergency. Yeah. I found myself on a couple of those times on the shows going like this. Oh, wow. That's and I knew, crazy. I knew immediately, I knew immediately that I wasn't into it. Yeah. Because if I'm into a show, there's nothing I'm looking at except the guests exactly. and, focus on, oh, my, and my notes. Right, right. So besides podcasting, do you see any other mediums this, like, this robust to be able to help push a business or a brand? you know, in, in different formats. No, I think podcasting is huge. And here's the deal. It's not for everybody. It's one of those things. Remember a few years back, everyone's like, you need to write an Amazon book. You need to be a bestseller. You need to find the most obscure freaking category. You know, I, I wrote a book about podcasting, but I'm going to put it into earthworm farming so I could get myself to number one status. Right. And you're like, what the fuck? Like you, how do you, how the hell did you become a number? Oh, you bought all your books yourself and now you're giving them away or you're doing the one cent audio book. I'm like, come on. But Back then, sorry, that was a rant. It's true. You know exactly what I'm saying. It's so funny. Like, no one cares about your book. It's a shitty book. There's no way you're a number one bestseller, right? Same thing. Like, it's ridiculous what people do. But um, if you have an itch like I had and you want to scratch it and you want to, like, try something, podcasting is great for yourself, your own personal development, before we even get into the business side of it. Now, you talk about the business side of it. I didn't go out with this podcast with the intention of turning it into a business development tool. That happened organically. And that's when the light bulb went off. I'm like, holy shit. I could reach out to people that I admire who are decision makers at companies that I want to do business with, invite them onto the show because now I have a somewhat successful show and they're happy to do so. They wouldn't return my email before this, but now they're happy to come on my show. I engage them. We have conversations. We build relationships. We have the podcast. I follow up with them. And then almost more than half the time they go, hey, Adam, um, what do you do besides podcasting? Right. And then I, it's a natural organic pitch. You're like exotic dancer. Right. Exactly. Or, or I'll throw a hard pitch. I mean, or I'll pitch him or I'll pitch him. And that is what I built into this ecosystem where the, the podcast and the business are all one and the same. It's an ecosystem. And that's why the two logos here are combined behind me. This is an HP and that's a podcast and they're together. That's the system. Adam. In my universe. Who's your my planetarium? Who's your dream guest that you haven't had on yet? Howard Stern. Well, what are you waiting on? What are you doing? I actually, what are I you actually, doing? I sent. I <laughs> so I'm approaching 200 episodes, and I want a insanely large A-list guest. So I'm swinging big, and I have my feelers out on a couple. And I listen. I, I have a couple direct contacts to to Howard, and it's an, there's this, there's a one percent zero point one percent chance that he would do it because he doesn't do these things. So I'm trying to figure out an angle, right? How how would I? You know, it's not going to happen, right? Howard's a dream guest. Andy Cohn, who I absolutely love. Andy Cohn is a student of Howard Stern. He's another one who's an absolutely incredible interviewer because Howard's his mentor. Howard, he's been on the show. He's the only person I think could actually not replace Howard, but follow Howard. If, if there was someone else that was going to do a show like Howard, it would be Andy. And I have direct contacts to Andy and it just slow response or no response. It's a tough one, Andy Cohn. But if he's listening, he knows. <laughs> I've bombarded him enough through direct contacts. Then some weird ones too. Like um, I'd love to have Mike Tyson on the show. I'm trying to pitch him. Business-wise, I mean, I'd love to talk to Cuban. I love Mark Cuban. I love his story. I think he's just a real dude. You uh, just tweet him. He, he responds to everything. Yeah. No, seriously. He does. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Like he, he responds to every single thing himself personally. 
Yeah, and I have direct contacts there too. So Cuban would be great. Music wise, I'd love. I mean, I love. I would love to interview Dave Matthews. Mm. You know, I real talk about his career, who I has paralleled my life. I mean, music wise, I mean, I'd love to talk to Madonna. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. some really interesting. You know, folks from music that I that I would love to talk to. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's coming. I mean, I'm patient. You know, you what are I mean? patient. Shows. You are patient. You know, there's people who have had five. Look at Jordan Harbinger, who I love. You know, oh, like, Jordan's the best. I, I love him. I adore he's, him. He's, he's he's my dude, and he's real with his time. He was another great guest that I had on. I love my conversation with him because he gave me feedback. I asked him for feedback live when we were recording. Yeah. Because I wanted to give that experience to the listener. You know, um, Jordan was my guy for your your guitar guy who said you were really, really good. Yeah. Um, Jordan was supposed to be on for 20 minutes, and he gave me an hour. And when we were done, he said, you are really, really good at this. Mm-hmm. And I was stunned. I was shocked. But, I mean, when Jordan says that, I'm like, okay, I really need to refocus. I need to really, like, take this super seriously, and, and I owe it to, to be the best. So, there you go. So, Adam, we you obviously know the show is on obstacles um, into opportunities, and we like to end the um, conversation with this question. What is the biggest obstacle that you've faced thus far that you've been able to turn into an opportunity? I think the biggest obstacle goes back to that day, April 1st, 2015, where I had to make a decision in my career that really affected my life. And the obstacle was, I am now at my lowest. What am I going to do from here? And that was a moment when I had to harness this tenacity that was always inside of me, but it never needed to or had to come out and say, I need to be there and be my best for me so I could be my best for my family. And, and that was the moment everything changed when I really took accountability and ownership of my career. And in turn, it really gave me a lot more accountability in my life. And I haven't looked back. Adam, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for the connection. Thank you for all of the laughs. Where can our listeners find you and learn more about you? Absolutely. So for any marketing, media, advertising jobs, you could check us out at nhptalentgroup.com. And if you want to check out the show, it is the pause, P-O-Z-Cast.com. And you can find all of our great episodes there. Thank you again so much. This has been so much fun. Awesome. Stephanie, thank you so much. And, and thanks your audience for spending the last 51 minutes and 28 seconds with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, head over to YouTube to check out all of the live videos on our new podcast channel, Spin It with Stephanie Malik. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.